I'm going to let you guys do a little work for me this morning um, that you're going to share, have a little interaction with one, one another. I'm going to give you two questions, and actually, uh, you should be careful how you answer these, especially if you're sitting uh, with some family members or significant other, because you could get in trouble uh, in how personal you make these. And the first question I want you to just share with people next to you uh, is, what are silly things we tend to get angry about? And now, you shouldn't say... Here's some silly things you get angry about. I would encourage you to say more in general. What are some silly things that uh, people tend to get angry about? But if you'd share with the people next to you, or just, uh, or maybe you have to create a group of three or four, share what are silly things that we tend to get angry about. Go ahead and do that now. Do you want to share with me? Mistakes. Oh. Driving is a real big culprit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any other things? Silly things we get angry about? Getting in the wrong line at a store. You know, like whatever line I go to, that's yeah. the one that's going to have the problem. <laughs> You're like, come on, lady. Yeah, and if I move lines, the problem moves. Yes. With me. <laughs> nice. I like that. <laughs> I think sometimes like getting somebody getting our order wrong. You know. Coffee, you know, like we're not addicted. I just need it now. <laughs> you know, we're not addicted in any way. I need it right, set the right temperature. Yeah. So I'm going to give you uh, another thing. This isn't a question. 
but something to interact about for maybe a minute or two. Agree or disagree, anger is bad. Agree or disagree, anger is bad. And so uh, go ahead and you can share with people around you. Anger is bad, agree or disagree. to that might probably depends a lot on you know what anger looked like for you growing up uh, maybe what you experienced from caregivers or parents or family members or coaches or teachers and you got this impression of what uh, if anger is good or not and I think a good question for us as we transition is when is it good to be angry uh, I'm not going to have you answer that but when is it good to be angry in the series we're doing uh, in Exodus 34 6 to 7 leading up to Christmas uh, we're calling it Now in Flesh Appearing, coming from the song, oh, I got this wrong yesterday. It's, oh, come, oh, come let us adore him. One of the phrases is, now in flesh appearing, like this God has now appeared in the flesh. And we're asking, well, which God is it? You know, what is this God like? Like if God is with us and coming in the flesh in the person of Jesus, well, which God? Uh, and what is that God like? And these two verses, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, are two, some of these words that God uses to describe himself are repeated over and over again, over 20 times uh, in the Old Testament. So you can see how the people of Israel, they just really grabbed onto this. It's like God described himself in this way, and they're holding onto those words as important and precious and reassuring. Uh, and so they're good for us leading up to Christmas. We're looking at these attributes and then seeing how did those appear in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, how did Jesus embody them, how was God sending Jesus actually an expression of those um, five attributes. And this, our view of God is so important because your view of God is going to grow the fruit in your life. Now, whatever, however you see God is going to be what grows your behavior, your attitude, how you respond to people, how you treat people. And we, there's a principle, I can't you know, prove it to you right now um, in Scripture, but there's a principle in the Bible which is what, what you worship, you become like. You are what you worship. That we, whatever we're worshiping in life, whether it's God or a false, you know, view of God or it's something else, uh, you know, you think about American Idol and it's like, well, those are literally the word idol is in there. It's like that's what we want to be. Like this is what I'm chasing after. The God I'm looking for is this. And so whatever, whatever we love, whatever we worship, we become like that. Whatever uh, we're giving ourselves to in hope, faith, hope, and love, is what we become like. And so how we see God is going to affect what's growing in our life, attitudes and behaviors. And 
most of us, or most people, I should say, see God as easily angered or as always angry. He's just ready to, to go off at any moment. And the only time he isn't angry is when we have our act together, uh, which is rare. And so God is rarely not angry. If anything, he's just always upset. And we, need to, and we tend to see ourselves as in control of God's emotional state, of like how God feels is dependent on how I'm doing, you know, how I'm performing, whether I've got things together or not. And I'm just going to give you this question. We've already been touching on it, but is it good that God gets angry? Is it good that God gets angry? And if you were just, you know, to answer yourself, you know, you imagine it's a quiz and I gave you this quiz and you're answering that, like, is it good uh, that God gets angry? And even more personally, we can be like, well, can you thank God for getting angry? Like, can you be thankful that God gets angry? Is that something you can worship and praise God for? And it's challenging for me, to be honest. I was just telling Vince that uh, during a lot of my life, it's like, well, anger's a bad thing. It's a scary thing. It hurts people. And so if God is scary because he gets angry. And so my relationship with anger and God's anger has been something, you know, throughout my life that I've had to work through and I'm still working through. And perhaps for you, you're like, yeah, I don't see how God could be a good person if he's angry. How can, what is praiseworthy about his anger? And so this will be a good passage for us to go through together. And as I said earlier, it's on page 74, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Let me read these verses for us um, to remind us what they say. The Lord passed before him, referring to Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So at the end of the series, we'll have covered all of what's said in those, in those verses. And so if there's parts of it that you're like, I don't really get that, like we're going we're gonna to get there. Um, but today we've covered, first, we've covered the first word, compassionate, or some translations, this one says merciful. So God is compassionate, God is merciful. Um, last time, not last week, but two Sundays ago, we covered God is gracious. And today we're covering God is slow to anger. And it's interesting that all three of those words, to different degrees, have to do with emotion. That God feels something. Compassion or mercy is that God feels towards us. He has this uh, desire, sees what's going on with us, and He feels for us, and you know He's pained by it and moves towards us. And gracious, we talked about, is gaining favor in God's eyes. That God is delighting in us. God is uh, liking what He sees in us. That He enjoys us. And so there's an emotional component. Then, of course, slow to anger has. Uh, anger as the emotional component. And God reveals himself in these words and in throughout the whole Bible to be deeply passionate, to be filled with emotion and that he uh, expresses, the, expresses those. But he's also completely in control of his passion. God is very passionate, but he's also completely in control of those passions that, uh, and emotions and feelings. And we see two realities in this word, uh, slow to anger. So we see, well, God does get angry but he is also slow to get angry. So God gets angry and he's slow to get angry. Another way sometimes this word has been translated is long-suffering. And so if you think about that, like God is willing to bear with something for a long time, to suffer through something. He's long-suffering. And I want to just first talk very briefly about um, two instances where we'd expect God to be angry, but he isn't. It's an interesting thing that if you're going through the Bible, there's times where you're like, God is going to be really angry about this. And you might even have stories in your head where you assume God was angry in that story. And then you might be surprised to read, oh, actually, 
God didn't do that uh, because of anger. He did it because of something else. And the first story, just very quickly, is in Genesis chapter 3. God creates the world, uh, creates a good place for uh, humanity to dwell. The first humans are Adam and Eve. And he gives them one rule, which is basically don't define good and evil on your own terms. Like, trust me. Don't, don't, you don't, you're not in charge of life. That I'm in charge of life. I'm going to tell you what's good and bad and what you should do. And they decide, actually, we're going to turn away from God. We'd rather him not be in charge. And we like to decide that on our own. And then God comes walking. Uh, we're told he's walking through the garden that he had put them in. And then he doesn't find them. I mean, of course, God knows where they are. But he doesn't, you know, sometimes you might know where your kids are. But you say, you know, where are you? Like, come out from there. But God comes walking and he says, where are you? Because they're hiding from him. They're afraid of him. And then they come out and they say, you know, he's, why are you hiding? And they say, well, we, we did this. And he says, did you eat from that the thing? I told you not to eat from that tree, representing that you're going to choose good and bad and define it for yourself. Did you do that? Did you turn from me and do that? And they say, yes. And you'd expect God to be like, I told you, you had, you had one thing, one rule not to do. You'd expect him to be angry, but there's no emotion described. In this case, we can, you can conjecture maybe, but I wouldn't recommend that. But he's not described as being angry and actually... You know, we might fill anger in there when he's saying, where are you? Might, we might fill it in and say, think he's saying, where are you, Adam and Eve? And, but that would be us filling in our own uh, assumption about what God's feeling. But he just says, where are you? And then he talks to them. A second instance would be in Genesis chapter 6. And um, maybe even if you're not super familiar with the Bible, you've probably at least heard about the flood, Noah and the ark and the flood. And you would think, well, God is like, uh, things got really bad and God got angry so he flooded the whole earth to get rid of everybody. But actually, that's not what we're told that the story says. And I'm just going to read um, the verses of what it says. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Um, did I write a page down? Page 5, if you're using one of the black Bibles. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And so we'd expect that God saw the wickedness and he was mad. We're told he was grieved. There was a sadness there. So it's different than what we would expect. And so that's just two instances when we'd expect God to be angry, but he isn't. And then going to the book of Exodus, the book we're in, we just there's three instances for the first time God is described as angry in the book of Exodus. So it's the second book of the Bible. You have to get through 50 chapters of Genesis and get into Exodus before God's described as angry. And so we're going to look at just quickly three instances where God gets angry in Exodus. And the first is with Moses, the guy who he chooses to do this whole rescue mission with the people of Israel. Is that he hears the, his, the people of Israel's cries, he's, the people he's committed himself, they're in uh, suffering and slavery and Pharaoh and he's killing off their babies and God hears their cries coming up to him and he has this compassion that we've talked about a couple weeks ago and God says to Moses I'm gonna send you in and you're gonna tell Pharaoh let my people go and you're gonna bring them out and God's res Moses response is that five times he refuses he makes five different excuses well what about this what if that happens what if this happens and God answers every single one saying don't worry like we've got this and finally he says just send somebody else. Like, <laughs> finally he's got through all the excuses and he's like, I just actually don't want to go. And then we're told that God becomes angry with Moses. And then it'd be like, well, okay, well, what does God do with that anger? What is his uh, action he takes? Actually, what he does for Moses is he says, okay, 
It says God was angry, and then he says, okay, your brother Aaron, he's going to come and help you. So God actually, like, helps him. He gives him something to help him, even though it's like you're refusing to trust in me, but okay, I'm going to, like, give you something to help you. That's what God does in his anger. And then the second person that gets that uh, God becomes angry with is Pharaoh. And as I just said, Pharaoh is oppressing God's people. He's enslaved them. He's murdering their baby. Their baby. He's a dictator. And so God says, I'm going to send Moses in, and you're going to tell Pharaoh, uh, let my people go, but he's not going to listen. And you're going to warn him, this is what's going to happen if you don't let them go. Like, you're going to have these plagues sent on you. And we're familiar with the ten plagues. And the, the reason there's ten plagues is because... Pharaoh refuses ten times to listen to God. Kind of similar to Moses, refuses to listen to God. And Pharaoh refuses to listen to God ten times. He actually gets double the chances to, change, to, to repent, to do the right thing. Ten t- chances, double what Moses got to do the right thing. And then in the song that happens, like so finally God leads them out, sends all these plagues, and then they go through the Red Sea, and then the Red Sea collapses on Pharaoh and his army that are chasing God's people. And in the song that is sung after that, kind of celebrating everything that happened, uh, we're told that God, what, what was happening when God sent the sea unto Pharaoh and his army is that he sent out his fury. And so God, angry at Pharaoh, gave him ten chances, refuses, and he brings judgment upon him. And actually, Pharaoh brings, upon, brings it upon himself. It's like if he wasn't pursuing God's people like that, he wouldn't have been in the situation where he would have been destroyed like that, that he actually, his refusal to listen to God is what brings him into this place that it just basically is the consequences of his choices. And then we see God leading the people through the wilderness. And Israel, he doesn't actually get mad in this case, but he has a lot of reason too that Israel keeps refusing to trust him. He's leading them through the desert and he's providing for them. They keep saying, it would have been better to go back to Egypt. Like, would you bring us out here for Moses that we can die in the desert where there are not enough graves in Egypt? And they're complaining about God not trusting him. And God doesn't respond with anger. He responds with, okay, I'm going to provide water for you. I'm going to provide manna for you, this bread that they get from heaven. And he is patient and provides. But where he does get mad is in the golden calf story, which is where we get these verses that we're looking at here. And the background is that God at Mount Sinai brings the people out of Egypt, brings them to Mount Sinai, and he says, look, this is what I've done for you. I will be your God. You'll be my people if you will commit to this relationship with me. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments and says, this is what I'm asking for you. It's like, these are your vows to me. Um, I've already vowed myself to you. This is what I want you to commit to uh, with me. And they say, yes, we'll follow them. And they're 40 days into committing to God. And they break the first two commandments. There's only ten, uh, so it's not a lot. And they break the first two. And the first two talk about that God is to be their only God. And they're not to make any carved images, any little statues of gods, either of God himself or of other gods to worship. And they break those first two. And so what happens is they've betrayed God. They've broken covenant with God. It's described as adultery later in the Bible. And then God is angry with them. And the threat is that you're going to be destroyed and separated from me because of this. But then God actually lets Moses be a mediator Let's Moses be a representative and responds to Moses' prayers and says, okay, I'm not going to destroy you. And so he is mad, tells us what they deserve, but then he actually doesn't follow through on that. And this leads us to the why of God's anger. Why does God get angry in the Bible? Well, the people of Israel, out of all the people in the world, God has chosen them specifically to wholly commit himself to, to completely commit himself to, 
that I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And he chooses to set his love on them. And he says, uh, you're going to be my treasured possession. Of all the people, you're going to be my treasured possession. You're going to be a kingdom of priests to me, meaning you're going to represent me to the world. You're going to be a holy nation, meaning you're set apart for me and my purposes. And then he asks them, I want you to wholly commit yourselves to me. I've wholly committed myself to you, completely committed myself to you. I want you to completely commit yourself to me. And he says, what, what does that look like? Later on, Deuteronomy uh, 6 says, that I want you to love me with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole strength, all your soul. Everything you are, everything you have, I want it to be all committed to me. And he gives them the Ten Commandments. And before the first commandment gets said, he says, I am the Lord your God, saying, you know, this, I'm committing myself to you. I'm the Lord your God. Now, what does it look like for you? You shall put no other gods before me. You should make no statues or images of me or any other god to worship. And why is that? Why should they not do that? God says, right in that command, he says, because I am a jealous God. Because I am a jealous God. And what we see in the word jealousy for us is like, well, that seems not right. When I'm jealous, that's a bad thing, right? I want what somebody else has. But we need to kind of get our heads around, what does it mean when God says, I'm a jealous God? It doesn't have the same negative connotations um, in that language as it does for us. And when God is provoked to anger in the Bible, it's almost always about idolatry, where we're supposed to be completely committed to Him, but idolatry means we're worshiping something else instead of Him, that we're replacing God, that we're cheating on God. You're supposed to be in this exclusive committed relationship with me and you turn to something else and God uses very descriptive language he'll say you've prostituted yourself to these other gods it's a very graphic image and what we see is that God is provoked to anger because of his people cheating on him and what husband wouldn't be angry when their if their spouse cheated on them and so God is a passionate God and he's passionately committed so a couple of things we learn about this jealousy that God is saying, I have chosen you and I want you to be totally committed to me just like I'm totally committed to you. And so what this tells us is God will not share them. He's jealous. This is not an open marriage. He won't tolerate adultery, infidelity, unfaithfulness, sleeping around on him. And he even says a little further down, Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, he'll say this word jealousy again. 34.13, he's telling them, when you come into the land I'm going to give you, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. This is referring to all the gods they worshipped. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. And so he's like, I want you to destroy all the other gods. You're going to come, I'm going to give you this land. It's full of people worshipping all these other gods, false gods. And I want you to destroy all of the things that they used to worship them. Because I'm a jealous god, It's I just want, it's just you and me, no other gods, no one else is getting into this relationship. And so we learn God will not share them. That's why his jealousy means he will not share them. And God will not share his glory, which is basically like uh, the weightiness, the greatness of who God is. And when we turn to something else uh, to say, like, God, you're not enough for me. I need something else. God says, no, like, I am everything for you. I'm not going to share that with somebody else. And it might be like, well, isn't somebody living for their own glory kind of a little, I don't know, I mean, like prideful and arrogant, like it's all about you? And yes, it is all about God. That's what we were made to, uh, to see and to live with. But it's also a very good thing about, a very good thing for us. There's a man, a um, pastor named John Piper, who's written tons of books. 
And his little phrase that like has defined his whole ministry is that God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in Him. And so God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in Him. Meaning, you, the more you are satisfied in God for everything He created you to find in Him, the more He is seen to be great and awesome. So it's like everything we've been created to find everything in God, and the more satisfied we are in Him, the more glorified He is by our life of saying, yes, He is our God. So God will not share them, God will, God will not share his glory, and God wants good for them. His jealous, I heard once a uh, Bible scholar uh, kind of defined it this way, that God's jealousy means it's a passion that arises within you when somebody that you're covenantally committed to gives themselves to someone who will hurt them. And so it's both this, I don't want you to leave this relationship, but also a compassion of like, if you go that way, this is going to hurt you. This person is just going to hurt them. And maybe you can identify with this, that my intensity with my kids and my anger tends to rise in proportion to how dangerous the situation is. That I get the most upset with Hudson when he runs out in a parking lot and there's a car coming because he could die. And I try to get it through his head. My intensity rises the more danger he's in. Of course, he's not like cheating on me. But it's like you can understand that God, when he sees us going a direction that is going to hurt, that his intensity can raise in that instance. So God is provoked to anger when his people turn from him. And there's several metaphors that the Bible uses to talk about uh, what happens when God is provoked to anger, that God hides his face. It's kind of like this turning away, like you imagine if you are sitting at, hopefully this didn't happen to you, but if you're at Thanksgiving dinner and Aunt Betsy is mad at you, like she just, you know, will the whole time be turned away from you and not engaging with you face to face. So it's God's turning away. His face is like a, a way to say, like, you are not acceptable to me right now. Another metaphor is God handing uh, his people over. And really what God is, if you want life without me, I'll hand you over to life without me. And it's going to be awful. It's going to destroy you. And uh, Katie had this student um, this year, uh, she's a high school math teacher, and there's a student that was always was sleeping uh, in every class period. She'd wake him up, and he would just go back to sleep. And so one time, uh, she just let him sleep through the class, and class ended. And when the next teacher was coming in, she said, don't wake him up. He always sleeps in my class. Just let him sleep. <laughs> and then the class is going on, and all the, all of the next you know, wave, it's like juniors. He's like a freshman. These are juniors. They're like taking pictures with him, like selfies, uh, and as he's sleeping. And all of a sudden, he wakes up and looks around and doesn't recognize anybody and then he just like leaves the room without saying anything and Katie said he never slept again and so it was like she instead of continually rescuing him from the negative consequences of him sleeping like you want to sleep and you're expecting me to wake you up and so you can listen or go to your next class like she handed him over to his choice you want to sleep I'll hand you over to that and you'll suffer the consequences of it so often God handing people over when he's angry, it's like, you want life without me, which, you know, for this student, you want to sleep in my class, I'll hand you over to that. If you want life without me, God will hand us over to that. And this brings us to the third metaphor. So there's God turning his face away uh, as a consequence of uh, being provoked to anger or handing us over. And the third is drinking the cup of God's anger. And this will bring us to Jesus. It takes a long time before God actually hands Israel over to their choice to turn away from God. 
he bears with it for centuries. I mean, there's like little things that happen, but he doesn't do like the big thing of like, he, he warns them, if you keep turning from me, I'm going to hand you over to other nations. They're going to come in, take over the land. You're not going to have your own land anymore. And that's going to be the consequence. Like this land I'm giving to you, but it's only yours. It's a privilege. And if you're going to turn from me, then I'm going to hand you over to the consequences of turning from me. And God, for centuries, does not bring that ultimate consequence on them. And he gives them many warnings to turn back. Centuries go by. Then eventually what happens is the prophets uh, are, who are saying to Israel, you need to turn back. We've turned from God. We know the consequences. He told us what's going to happen. We need to turn back before this happens. And God, And they start using this image of drinking the cup. We're going to drink the cup of God's anger. And God says, I'm going to bring my cup of anger. I'm going to make you drink it, which is basically... You're going to drink the consequences. It's your own choice. You're going to drink the consequences of it. And the consequence, drinking the cup, would be being handed over to other nations because you've turned from God. And then when Jesus comes, he warns Israel. He talks about the cup of God's anger. He's telling the Israel of his day in the first century, who at that point are occupied by the Roman Empire, um, but they are heading in a bad direction. He keeps telling them, if you keep heading in this direction away from God, it's going to get worse. The you're going to have to drink the cup of God's anger. This is, you think this is bad, it's going to get worse. And eventually, Rome comes and destroys Jerusalem in, uh, I believe, 70 A.D. It's like Jesus' is warning, this is going to happen if you keep turning from me. But Jesus himself also talks about drinking the cup. Two of his disciples, James and John, come and say, Jesus, when you become king, we kind of want to sit like his princes on your right and your left. And Jesus asked them, are you able to drink the cup? that I have to drink. And they say, yes. And he's, you know, basically, he's like, you have no idea what you're asking for. If you want to be in these places of authority in God's kingdom, can you do what I want to do? At the Last Supper, Jesus takes the cup uh, with his disciples. We call it the Lord's Supper. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup, which is me basically drinking the consequences of you turning from God, this cup of me dying, this cup in my is a new covenant in my blood. My death is me drinking the consequences for you turning from God. And then the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying to, to God. He's about, this is hours before he goes to the cross and dies. And he says to God, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but your will be done. And so Jesus is seeing, I'm heading towards drinking this cup that God warned his people have to drink as the consequence, the cup of his anger, the consequence for turning from him. And he sees, I'm about to drink it. And we're seeing in Moses, we saw that this was to be expected, that somebody would need to come and drink, absorb God's anger towards us for turning from him. Moses, uh, God was angry, and Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, and God accepts that. He's, Moses is like, I'm going to try to get forgiveness for you. I'm going to try to get atonement. And he even says, uh, you kill me, God, instead of these people. Moses tries to substitute himself, and God says, no, they've got to pay for their own sin. And we talked about it when we looked at that passage in Exodus 34, that actually Moses couldn't be a substitute to pay for the, their sin because he has his own sin. He had already murdered somebody at this point. He already broke one of the Ten Commandments. And so Moses can't be a substitute to take their sin. It would need to be somebody who is perfect, who, has, who doesn't have the sin of their own to pay for and then when Jesus comes, he's saying, I'm going to drink the cup. I'm the one who can stand as the substitute for all of your turning away from God. All the forgiveness you need, I'm going to pay for it. And what Jesus is, is the faithful covenant partner. 
who takes the place of covenant breakers. That we've broken our relationship with God, but Jesus never had a broken relationship with God, but he takes our place. He drinks the cup in our place, the cup of the deadly consequences of rebelling against God, of being an idolater, an adulterer. And one of the words for what Jesus has done uh, that um, 1 John talks about this, or Romans chapter 3 says, that Jesus was the propitiation for our sin, which is one of those big $10 Bible words, which basically means a sacrifice that takes away wrath or anger. And when, so when the Bible says Jesus offered himself as a propitiation, it was, I'm going to drink the cup, the cup of death that you deserve uh, for, what, for turning from God. And so Jesus is given over to the consequences of our infidelity to God. So we come back to some of those questions I gave you at the beginning. Will you worship God for his anger? Is it good that God gets angry? Do you love God for his anger? You know, people that we love, we tend to admire them. And is it like, man, I, I love that God gets angry about the right things. I can't be about the wrong things. But do you love that God has anger? Now we have to remember, all God's attributes, they all flow from his goodness. And so just uh, as we're wrapping up the, what we've been talking about. God's you know, first point is God's anger is good. A perfect person isn't one who never gets angry, but one who gets angry for the right reasons, but through a right amount of anger, and expresses it rightly. And so a perfect person isn't someone who never gets angry. Because God is good, he gets angry for our good and against evil. We, you really don't want a God who is indifferent and apathetic. You don't, you don't want an indifferent God, an apathetic God. Would we want a God who is indifferent and apathetic to the Holocaust, to human trafficking, to racism, to rape, to child molestation, to oppression, to genocide? We do not want a God who is indifferent to those things. We want a God who is good and gets angry about evil. God gets angry for good reasons. And nobody makes God angry. God's anger is always a response from his own goodness that's perfectly fitted to the situation in front of him. That we don't, aren't in control of God's emotions, his anger. And if you look through the, the, the accounts of Jesus' life, Jesus got angry. Uh, and Jesus was, you know, people, you know, but he also died for the people that he's angry at. That, and so we can say, I want to God, teach me to be angry like Jesus, <laughs> to be angry about the right things and the right amount and with the right response to it. And we're told in Ephesians chapter 5, or it might be 4, um, be angry and do not sin. So it's possible to be angry and not to sin. Uh, those don't have to be, uh, it's not a sin to be angry. So God's anger is good, and we deserve God's anger for turning from him and placing our faith, hope, and love and things that will only destroy us. And it's not necessarily what we do that God gets angry about, but it's why we do it, what we want from it, that we're actually replacing God. The things that we do, when we do things that God says not to do, or we don't do the things he says to do, it's we're saying, I know better for me, and I'm going to turn to this other thing. I'm not going to trust in you. And we just have no idea what it's doing to us. And I've known people who uh, can't have a hard time with the Bible and God being angry because it's like, well, it's just blank. What's the big deal? <laughs> Why does God care so much about, you know, these issues in my life? Why is God just up there like micromanaging all of us? What's the big deal? 
It's just, you know, blank, whatever it is that you feel like, well, why does God get angry about that? Why does he overreact about that? And we really just have no awareness of how destructive and deadly our choices are when we turn from God. And last week, um, we, we haven't quite fully learned that Ezra, our youngest, can reach stuff on the table. And so places we used to put stuff on the table, he can now reach on the edge of it. And last week, he had reached up, and he had gotten a steak knife that I was using to you know, cut up some of his food, and he's holding it by the blade. So he's got it in his hand, holding it by the blade, and I'm like, Ezra, let it go. And I was speaking to him with anger eventually, trying to get him to see, this is serious. You can't, and he's just like looking at me like, what? Like, I'm going to hold this. And I'm, he had no idea the danger he was in or the danger he was putting other people in. Like if he, you know, he could have swung at Hudson and poked Hudson in the face or whatever. And he's holding the knife blade. And I'm saying, Ezra, let it go now. You know, I'm speaking very firmly because he had no idea the danger that he was in. And God may speak very firmly to us because we have no idea the danger and destruction that we bring upon ourselves. But lastly, God, uh, God's anger is good. We deserve God's anger, but God is slow to anger. And we can tend to think that God is angry all the time, that that's like his natural disposition, that we have to walk on eggshells, that he has a hair trigger, a short fuse, he could just blow up at any time for any reason, like God has a lot of bad days, so don't do anything to like set him off. And if someone as powerful as God isn't in control of his anger, that is very bad news for us. If God can just be set off, if we can make him angry. But here's the point from this passage we get, is that the goodness of God is seen in how he's slow to anger when he has many reasons to be angry. The goodness of God is seen in how he's slow to anger when he has many reasons to be angry. His natural disposition is not angry, but slow to anger. And he's good to us longer than we deserve. He gives us many chances to turn back. And lastly, God is ready and eager to not be angry. <laughs> that when God does get angry, he has a whole bunch of things that would make him not angry. Like us turning towards him, looking for forgiveness, saying, I'm sorry, I did that wrong. And I want to have, this is a quote from a book. And I forgot the book, so I have to load up a picture I want to share, you this, share this quote. People were talk, it was talking about this passage in particular, how God's slow to anger. Unlike us who are often emotional dams ready to break, God can put up with a lot. This is why the Old Testament speaks of God being provoked to anger by his people dozens of times. But not once are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded. Divine mercy is slow to build. It's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. For fallen humans, we learn in the New Testament this is reversed. We're provoked, well, we're supposed to be provoking one another to love. And God needs no provoking to love, only to anger. And we need no provoking to anger, but we need to be provoked to love. So God is not, to use the first two words we've looked at, God is not slow to compassion. God is not slow to be gracious. He's not slow to forgive. He's provoked to anger, but he's not provoked to love. 
And when God is declaring, even when he's declaring to his people, these, I'm handing over to the consequences of what you've done. He's even saying to them, I'm having, he expresses, I'm having a hard time doing it. Like, how can I hand you over to this? I love you, but I want, I need to do it for your sake so that you will turn back. So you'll realize what you're doing with your life so that you'll turn back to me. And then with Jesus, when Jesus comes, it's basically God is saying, this is what you should be handed over to, but let me pay for it. I'll pay for all your unfaithfulness, all your adultery, all your infidelity, all your prostituting yourself to other gods, trusting in them. I'm going to pay for it. And actually what we're told in Romans chapter 1, we're told that God, His wrath is being revealed, His anger is being revealed against us turning from Him, and He's going to hand us over to these consequences. And it's like, oh no, He's angry, we should turn towards Him. Um, But what we're told in the next chapter, Romans chapter 2, is that it's the riches of God's kindness his long-suffering, his patience are not to be presumed upon. It's like, oh, God's job is to forgive. It's like, no, those things, God's kindness, his grace, his love, that's meant to turn us back towards him. That's like, God is so good that despite all that we do, God still says, I want to love you, and I will even suffer to make you able to not suffer these consequences. And we can pass on this slow to anger to others. In James chapter 1, we're told, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, that we're told, be like God, be slow to become angry. We can get angry and not sin, but be slow to get there. Let's pray. Father, we just tend to see you as angry, and you do get angry, and for good reason. Would you help us praise you for your slowness to get angry? And would you let us trust your anger that when you are angry, it's for good reason and we should pay attention. Would you help us to become people who are slow to anger as well? In your son's name we pray. Amen.